Hola, everybody. Welcome to the Chats with Yvonne podcast with your host, Yvonne Armenta, where I talk about public speaking con cultura. In today's episode, I'm joined by Melissa Aguilera, an assistant professor of speech communication at El Paso Community College. She has been teaching courses on rhetoric, business, and professional communication and communication theory for 12 years. She has her Bachelor of Arts in Journalism and Mass Communications with a minor in Business Management and is the first in her family to receive a graduate degree, a Master of Art in Communication Studies from New Mexico State University. She is currently in her fourth year at the University of Texas at El Paso to obtain her EDD in Educational Leadership and Foundations. Professor Aguilera has worked in the nonprofit sector and radio prior to teaching at the college and keeps busy by co-advising Pulse Radio and as a board member of PFLAG El Paso. Throughout our conversation, you'll learn more about how Professor Aguilera started her journey in this industry, why she chose this profession, and how she helps students with their public speaking. If you were looking for an episode to give you all of the public speaking how-tos, this is it. From my conversation with her, it's clear that Professor Aguilera has a passion and the expertise in the art of communications. And as always, I wanted to start by hearing about her earliest memories with the art of public speaking. And you can probably relate. So let's hear it. Family events. I always spoke at family events just because I thought I had the most important things to say. (laughs) So I would say the first time was... I want to say it was like probably catechism graduation (laughs) because all those, those ceremonies are like meaningful. And I talk to students, like think about ritual, think about what it means culturally. And so think about all these things together. It was probably my catechism graduation. I fell asleep immediately after that, but I did. I was like, yay, thanks for being here. Thanks for giving me gifts or whatever. And then I didn't know, you know, I wore a pretty dress and that was okay. That was all I cared about. (laughs) Rituals and creating meaning from them is so important. How do our first interactions and cultural rituals shape our relationship to the art of public speaking? What things are we more willing to try because they're already a part of our traditions, celebrations, or daily interactions? I've had students tell me like, oh my God, you're just never shy. And I think I learned at a very young age to laugh at myself a lot is the thing too. It's not that I'm not shy. It's just that it's like, if I mess up, it's funny. It's, it's, it's funny at this point because I know I'm going to do it is the thing. Um, and you know, and I was always the one to go first. I was always like, Hey, I'll present first. Because I wanted to get it out of the way, though. And I tell students all the time, too, it's like, you know, you can just do it. Just do it and get it done. Like, then you don't have to think about it the rest of the time. Then you don't have to worry. Mine didn't look like theirs or mine didn't stack up to someone else's or theirs was really good. I'm not going to be able to beat that. Now you're the first and everybody's forgotten you. (laughs) Being the first to do anything is intimidating. Let's be real. But that's the thing that may be the most freeing. As first-generation students and graduates, we've navigated unfamiliar, uncomfortable, and often unwelcoming spaces before. It's not new to us, but it sure does feel like it each time we're called to go first. 
Professor Aguilera, who is also first-gen, understands what it's like to go for it. I wondered if she always knew that she'd end up where she is now. No. <laughs> no. So actually came to it much later. I'd originally thought I was going to like, when I started college, I was like, I don't, I don't even know what I want to do. I had like changed my major three times. Um, the counselors were tired of seeing me cause they're like, really just pick a major and finish, you know? And, um, I think people don't talk enough about that, which is sad because it makes students feel like they're the only ones. And I do tell students all the time, like, no, it's, it's, it's very common for you not to know going into college, what you plan on doing. There's no, there's no career plan. When you figure, when you figure things out, you figure things out. That's what happens. I think um, as a kid, I did do a lot of like, I, my mom will tell you, she always knew I was going to do something with teaching or education because I um, would force my cousins to sit down and I'd be like, I'm the teacher and here's, you're going to hand me your homework and things like that. And I don't even do that now, Are you? <laughs> but <laughs> I think um for me, I, I just always enjoyed informing people. Information was always key. And I originally thought I was going to do like journalism. I was going to do like music journalism. And I thought I was going to be a writer because I loved magazines. Um, and I was, so when I switched my major finally to journalism, I, I, that stuck. And then once I kind of started looking into all the different areas of journalism, I focused on, on, broadcasts on radio. I loved radio. I've always loved radio too as a kid. Um, I remember my tape player. I always had a tape player. I always had a CD player and I always had a book. Those were the three things I always carried with me. And the, which is funny because, you know, we've talked about like extroverts and introverts and things like that. I think my family thinks I'm introverted, which I'm not, which is kind of funny, but <laughs> um, because that was my, that was just the way I walked around in the world, you know, so, with my face in a book. And, um, as, as a kid, it just kind of never clicked like that. I could even be a professor. That's not, I didn't see me in my professors. It took a long time before I saw me in my professors. I don't think I, I don't think I finally had a professor that was a Latina until I was in my master's program. I want to say, and yeah, that took a long time. It took a long time. And for some of us, we may still be yearning to see someone like us represented in the spaces and positions we one day wish to be in. Or maybe we can't even begin to imagine the impact we could make because we haven't yet seen someone like us represented in those spaces. Representation is so important. And we're carving spaces out for ourselves as we go. You can't be what you can't see. And what we can't see, we may not necessarily know about either. If you're at a crossroads and don't know what to do with your career, maybe ask your parents, your loved ones. Professor Aguilera's mom always knew she'd be in education or doing something like what she's doing now. Maybe the things you were interested in as a child are the avenues for finding a passion that you can also get paid to do. How often 
Do we maybe not turn to our communities for that collective thought process? What if we made life decisions in community, talked a little bit more to one another? Others can see in us what we've maybe suppressed or what we are too afraid to lean into, or even the things that we don't know exist yet. That was something I didn't hear until I was in college too, because that was something like, oh, I never even thought of that. And as a teenager, I, I always did well in public speaking. I always did well. It just was something that came not naturally, because I don't think it's just a natural thing. I think there are things about my personality that lends itself to that. But noticing those things, I wasn't the one to notice them. My mom was, my teachers were for sure. My teachers were the ones who were like, hey, have you thought of being a teacher? Um, while I was in, while I was getting my bachelor's, I had some teachers from high school I used to see regularly and they were like, hey, have you thought about being a teacher? You would be really good at it. And I was like, no, why would I do that? <laughs> and maybe we can learn a lesson in reclaiming what comes most naturally to us by simply choosing to laugh at ourselves when we're faced with something that appears scary or makes us nervous which is actually a tool that Professor Aguilera has used throughout her career and in how she approaches public speaking with her students. I think, again, it's hard. It's hard because we're used to be, especially like teenage, early 20s, you know, years. I still have some students who are in high school because they're in dual credit programs. Um, they don't like laughing at themselves. They're like serious they can't believe you want me to tell you stuff about myself. Like, how dare you? Um, <laughs> and so I talk about the, the, I'm a, I'm a klutzy kind of person. So I have had many a falls <laughs> in front of people. And I just, you know, again, it's like, I cannot control the things that are going on. I might look like a put together professional, but most of the time I'm a big, I'm just a big goofball and I'm willing to admit that I think and I think that kind of puts them at ease a little bit like for some of them or even seeing each other where they're seeing each other present and it's kind of like oh well if they can talk about like the things they're passionate about or the things that they do um, often I make sure that everybody gets to know each other in the classroom so it makes it about like we'll joke about what everybody's doing like oh, haha, ha, you're going to talk about donuts again or something, you know, something that we all remember. Like I, I make too many jokes. Probably I make, I tell a lot of bad dad jokes, first of all, <laughs> and I tell them that at the beginning and I try to put them at ease and humor always makes us feel a little more comfortable, confident, like, oh, this person isn't going to be so harsh or this person isn't going to be so... Now, I have had those moments where I've had to be like, okay, remember, still the authority in the classroom, so you still have to listen to me, and we still have to do, like, focus and pay attention. But I think um, initially I try to get them just to feel relaxed. I tell them, don't be self-conscious, you know, <laughs> and I, I remind them <laughs> that it's, it's, not, it's not life or death. They're not going to die from presenting, and... Um, it's a, it's a struggle for them. It's a struggle for sure. I see it on their face all the time. So 
Professor Aguilera tells us that laughing at ourselves with the purpose of being free is about sharing and admitting to her own feelings of nervousness, creating a community in the classroom through relationships building first, using humor to make everyone feel comfortable and more confident, humanizing the experience. As a first-gen, oldest daughter to a single mother, there's a lot of things I've had to learn to do on my own. I've often felt like because of that and layers of things like being the only person in the room who doesn't have generations of scholars in their family, who is first in her family to graduate and be in the spaces that once seemed far away, as the only Latina in a room, I've often felt like I needed to over-explain something to get them to understand where I'm coming from because of our different lived experiences and also so that they couldn't question my expertise. And that shows up in the way I've navigated my public speaking journey. What shows up as rambling to someone else is actually me having a fear of being perceived as less than. I've always just been proving something. In my personal style of public speaking, I attempt to give you cultural context for how to understand me, especially if we're not from the similar lived experiences. Something that I've noticed, especially in us first-gen Latinas, is that going on stage, even speaking up in a room, is an act of vulnerability. We don't want to be seen as anything less than perfect because, again, our job has always been to get our foot in the door, knowing that we have no one in the space but ourselves to advocate for us. This space that Professor Aguilera creates in the classroom allows for that first-gen Latina to lean into that vulnerability and let those guards down that keep us bound to perfection. I think when I tell them things like, you know, 3% of Latinas have a master's, first of all, let's talk about that. And I work at a community college, which majority of their professors are Latinas. And it's a great thing, but that means something about higher education, which is a whole other conversation, of course. But what I think they're seeing is that, again, I'm a professional person, but I'm also just a person. I'm also a person that you can talk to. And I have a lot of them come to me and ask me personal advice, or they'll ask me like, hey, I don't get how to register for this class or something happened and I can't get my financial aid. Can you help me? Do you know someone? And just feeling like that resource for people or students in general makes me feel good. I feel like at least I can help with them and guide them in the right direction. I know I still feel that way too, where I'm in these, in this program. And sometimes because I am, the only Latina in the room in this program sometimes, other than one other professor, maybe, um, you know, I'm sitting there going, ah, yeah, I don't know if I want to share my opinion on this. I remember one day I was in a, in a class, in an evening class, and it was, it was like all my cohort were men. And then one other person that was a, a woman wasn't there. And then the professor was also a man. And he's like, so as a woman, what do you think about this? And I was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> and it's like this, that even when we attempt to create safe spaces within classrooms, the outside world still hasn't caught up. And as an educator, 
Professor Aguilera herself still needs to navigate through. I wondered if it ever feels strange to have and advocate for a certain type of environment in the classroom where students are encouraged to speak up, but then being in a setting outside of the classroom and maybe feeling scared to speak up. Does that duality exist in Professora Aguilar's personal experience? It really does. And, and as much as I want them to feel comfortable, because I know what it's like to be, again, that only person, right? And it, it's, it's hard when you're like, well, you know, I want you to know that this is not always going to be this easy, too. I don't want them to feel like I'm blindsiding them with not the truth either. Cause that's something I felt a lot. I think I never thought about it until I would see myself in these rooms and go, Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. And people used to make it seem like, Oh, well, you know, we're, we're diverse. We want all these diverse things. And even in, in my department, I'm one of, four Latinas. I mean, there's like 20 something of us, maybe. <laughs> and so if, if you're like, well, I, I don't understand how it's a problem. It's just getting in those rooms in the first place, having a seat at the table is the second thing. And then actually being heard is the third thing. And sometimes that becomes problematic when people don't recognize Oh, well, you're here, you exist. I live on the border. I live on a, in the border city where, yeah, like majority of the population is Latino, but our education is not in the same place where we are, how many people are educated at the same level is not the same thing. And sometimes when I look to other places and I look at California or I look at other places and I see the strides they're making and in some of those areas, I get a little, you know, envious because I'm thinking, wow, I wish my students could see more of this. I wish they had more of those opportunities to recognize themselves in these spaces that exist for them, should exist for them, no matter what. Professor Aguilera describes always loving school. And for her, it's always been something that she's been passionate about. She says El Paso has its own unique culture, a bubble of sorts, because they get to see all types of people. They're on a border. There's a military base where soldiers travel to from all over the world. It's culturally diverse. And people actually forget that because they often see the Latina community predominantly present. She tells her students often that there's more to the world than their immediate experience, so that they're encouraged to explore. She describes it being difficult to see talent leave the area, but she recalls how her leaving made her appreciate home more and also gave her a perspective on life that she now appreciates. And if you've left home to study or you've moved to a new city or really been in an environment that's different than the one you grew up in, you can experience a bit of a culture shock. And I wondered what types of activities Professor Aguilera does with her students to prepare them for that moment, whether they're in El Paso or not, in which the spotlight is on them and they have an opportunity to speak and be heard. Sometimes it depends. So like right now they're doing introductory speeches and one of the speeches that they have to do is what's called um, 
So for one class, I have them do an elevator pitch speech, which is if you've never done one, <laughs> you're supposed to sell yourself in 30 seconds to the person of your dreams in an elevator, except mine is a very slow elevator <laughs> and they have to do it in two minutes. <laughs> they get to choose who they want to pitch to. So they can actually pitch to the class, like choose me to be a part of your team. Some, because some of them don't know what they want to major in or they kind of have an idea, but they haven't decided or landed on something. I don't push it with them. I think if they're going to figure it out, they're going to figure it out, whether they do it in my class or somewhere else. Um, others know. They know exactly who they want to work for. They know the name of the person. They know I'm going to intern for them in, you know, 2045 or whatever it is and... <laughs> The other speech I have going on right now is a is an introductory speech um, using an analogy. So they, they compare themselves to something. And this one, they usually choose animals or something that we can easily identify. Sometimes because students don't like talking about themselves, I kind of try to make it easier on them as a way to like, you know, give me a thing that you want to share and that they can kind of associate with themselves as that thing, then it doesn't make it feel so vulnerable. They don't feel so like, oh, now I have to tell you all the things about myself. I don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> so that one's more, that one's more focused on the, on having them like, I, how am I going to compare myself? What am what could I compare myself to? And I've had students do all sorts of things. Mostly, like I said, mostly they choose animals. I once had a student compare herself to a cactus. And I was like, that is a new one for me. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, and she was like, no, I really am. A, I'm like a prickly person. Like, I'm not a nice person. <laughs> she was, you know, she was very upfront. She was, and I loved it. I was like, do it. You do you. That's how you feel. That's great. That's awesome. That's a great way to showcase who you are. I've had students be a prism, like of colors. Um, you know, they pick, they get to choose and it makes them feel, like I said, a little less concerned about talking about themselves because some people like talking about themselves and some people don't. Students get to choose. Student agency allows for them to attach their learning to something that feels more personal. That's always been how I learn best. Even when I've had to present on subjects in school that I didn't necessarily have a passion for, linking it to aspects of my life that I did care about and had a passion for allowed me to show up as a better speaker. Personally, I find that when I can think critically about all aspects of something and find the connections, and I'm given the space to do this, I show up more confidently. It's like adopting a lens for which to look at something so that it feels more in line with my lived experience. And as a result, my retention of knowledge is heightened. Letting students individualize their learning through using metaphors that represent them in this case can also, I think, help with comparison. One of the lessons I've learned is not to compare my style of speaking to someone else's. Our deliveries are different. Our topics are different. And even if our topics are the same, the lens through which I approach makes my take unique. And I think that builds confidence as a speaker. Knowing that builds confidence. And I wondered if Professor Aguilera thought the same. 
yeah it's it is a way i mean they do they still do compare themselves in some ways for sure they're like well mine wasn't like that and i'm like that's okay i told you because we're all individuals and we all have different delivery styles we're all gonna have different approaches to kind of like look at it and say okay now reflect reflect on what this means to you it really is a great way for them to critically think about okay what do i offer what can i bring to the table who am I as a someone in the workplace or who, who do I want to be? Um, it's hard because we never think about these things on a regular basis, but we do think or we react in those values around it because we're saying, well, I'm a hard worker and, and we're going, well, how do we know you're a hard worker? Don't just say it, show us how you are and give us examples. And so this really helps them kind of pull those things out. Like, yes, that's great. I want to know that you're a hard worker, but how and in what ways and what else can you tell me about it? Like examples are really hard for them, but when they do it and they do it well, today's speeches were so good and I was so proud. I was like, yes, this is working. <laughs> Professor Aguilera and I have talked about cultural communication before. One of the things that I advocate for is feeling comfortable enough and knowing that it is okay to use your cultural forms of communication to let them shine on every stage you're on. And it made me curious about how she navigates nurturing these forms of communication in the classroom, especially with the diversity in El Paso while at the same time preparing students for the moment they step foot out of the classroom and have to manage the expectations of society? I, for me, I, I, I hope that they're feeling comfortable. Like I said, I have a lot of students that do travel across that international border every day, every day. And I, I teach early, I teach at 9 a.m. So they're, they're commuting at 9 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they're actually probably leaving their homes at 5 a.m. because the crossing takes hours. So just getting across the border. And I'll tell you where I work is not very far from that international border. Um, and, and even students from around the world in general, if I can make them feel comfortable, our non-native English speakers are always more concerned with the way they sound. They're always more concerned. And I tell them, I understand you. I've been doing this long enough, first of all. I live here, second of all. I understand you. Even if you slip up and you go back into Spanish or something, I can understand what you mean. I can gauge your meaning. Um, I've had students that are deaf in my classes, and that always brings in that other element of like, well, now we have the interpreter in the room. And those people are some of the, I mean, they really do know everything because they're they're working on that part of communicating that makes sense to everyone. So the nonverbals and, and those aspects. Um, it's really, really interesting to see all that interact in the classroom sometimes. I feel very lucky. I'm very fortunate. I feel like I learned so much just from the students alone. I mean, even even taking the time in our institution, I mean, that's another thing. I have colleagues who are deaf too. And I've talked with them and they've shared some of their stories and their struggles here. And while 
I know that no one's maliciously doing anything, it's important for us to remember those things. I'm a big communicator with my nonverbals in general. And I tell I tell students that too. I'm like, you can tell right away. I'm I'm always my face will tell you before the rest of me tells you how I feel. <laughs> or sometimes, especially if I'm being real serious, I have this, you know, we the lovely RBF and <laughs> And some people will go, oh my God, are you mad? And what happened? And and then I'm also extremely sarcastic. So that's the other problem. So, so texting is a problem for me because I'm like, I, I got to do all the JKs and the LOLs or else people will think I'm mad all the time. <laughs> and I, 90% of what we communicate is nonverbal. I mean, whether it's how you say something, right? Like I always use, I always kind of joke with students like, well, if I say, well, whatever versus, well, whatever those have two different meanings because you're using your tone to set what you mean by that and they kind of go oh yeah <laughs> and so it, it clicks in their brain like now i have to think about not only what i'm saying but how i'm saying it am i using nonverbals right am i comparing myself to someone's nonverbals when those could be cultural to those all of those things um because my background is in cultural communication I was, I was lucky enough and able to see how, it, I mean, some people will confuse culture and communication as the same thing, which, yeah, because they're so linked into what we do culturally, it is what we communicate. And I, I hope, my hope is that students will recognize those things and go, okay, it's not that it's weird or it's wrong. It's just different. It's just different. That perspective is so important and one that we don't necessarily talk about much in public speaking. At least I haven't for a long time, and that's a privilege that I have. Inclusivity is so important in the public speaking space if we want to make it everything that it could be. We're missing out if we don't make it one. And with our background in cultural communications, I wanted us to learn more about what that actually means. So... Culture is shared. We learn values, beliefs, and attitudes. I would say communication is those things being enacted. So you're sharing your values. You're sharing your, um, it's how we communicate culture. <laughs> culture, we communicate. So because it's shared, even though we think we're kind of born with it, we're not born with culture, we're born into culture. So you're born into learning these things, right? The way you speak, the way you stand, the way you move, all of those things kind of um, make up all of these different aspects of, of culture, but it's learned through communication, our speaking, our, our nonverbals, all of those things. For those of you who are leaning into starting or continuing your public speaking journey, while at the same time affirming and expressing your cultura in the process. You'll want to listen to this. I asked Professor Aguilera what things we could start reflecting on to better understand our communication style and how our culture is embedded in how we communicate. So for me, the question is always why. Why do I do something? Is it because I want to do it or is it because I've learned to do it or is it because I feel better when I do it or is it because 
why. So I'm always looking for the reason. <laughs> what is the point? <laughs> In other words, yeah, yeah. And so because I'm maybe too much overthinking happens, too much overthinking happens. And then I'm constantly like, okay, well, but why did I do that? <laughs> um, might be a problem for me. And it definitely does drain, you know, the way if you're an overthinker, it's, it's, it can be a lot because you're constantly thinking and making decisions. We make so many decisions in a day. We make like 1200 decisions in a day, honestly. And what I see students struggle with is like, but how much of this is me and how much of this is my culture and how much of this do I really want to do? Because I always joke, I was so afraid to grow up and become my mother when actually I grew up and became my father. <laughs> Just in his mannerisms in some ways, you know, and some of the things. For sure, I'm a combination of both, but I can see it. And because of those things, like I not in a bad way, my mom's great, but she's just so if people think I talk a lot, you know, my mother is a whole other story. <laughs> um, I'm the I'm the quiet one in the family, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, but it's a good thing because I get to see, you know, some of these things and and as a kid I was never told not to ask why. You know, I actually got in trouble. Um, so I was—I know we were talking earlier about like catechism and things like that. And I got in trouble because I asked why. I was like, why do we do this? <laughs> and that's not a question you ask in catechism. If you're a Catholic, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I really appreciate that perspective because if we can be more consciously looking for those things, we can decide what parts to keep and what parts to get rid of. And this is a topic that Professora Aguilera will often explore in her classroom. Generational culture and communications of that culture. What did generations before us learn and what and why did they do and sometimes still continue to do what they do? And to end our segment today, I wanted to hear what inspires Professora Aguilera about the future of public speaking. I would say, I mean, just people's stories. I love hearing from different backgrounds, different cultures, different people in general. I think the story itself is is part of the journey. Like now you're telling yourself this story and now you're seeing these things right at this moment. But in a few years, that might not be what you see or it might be a part of your life that you're glad that is over or you struggled or something and now you're you're recognizing those things and you're going back to it. Um, for myself, I've had many of those moments and I tell students, you know, it's okay to fail. It's okay to not be good at something. It's going to take time. It takes time for everything. Practicing a speech just doesn't mean that you're going to get it right away. Some people might have those personality types that lend themselves to these things, but others don't. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just how you're built as a person. And it might take you more time. For public speaking as a field, I would hope that we would see more diverse voices and recognize where we are lacking and fill in those gaps. I hope that we are hearing those stories because I've, like I said, I've had students tell me at the end of the semester, last semester, I students say, you know, um, 
we didn't have a voice, but you gave us a voice. And I, 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 as touching as that was, I was like, you gave yourselves a voice. All I did was provide the tools. That's all I did. <laughs> because really, it's not about me. It's about them finding that for themselves. Giving people the tools. And that's what we're all about here. Giving you the tools to make public speaking your own. To love it and find your passion in it. Con cultura. We ask for permission for a lot of things. Let's not ask for permission to show up as ourselves. Give yourself the freedom to dream, to create, and to speak how you like. Thank you so much for tuning in, Professor Aguilera. Thank you so much for being a part of this segment. This podcast episode is definitely one of my favorites. So many incredible insights. I appreciate your time. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope that you took something away, whether it's a new insight about how to get better at public speaking or a new way to think about public speaking. This is the Chats with Yvonne podcast where I talk about public speaking con cultura. Nos vemos a la próxima.